Tune Review, Print Speaking to the Blind, celebrating 40 years of audio newspaper production. Welcome to this week's edition of the National Podcast, recorded at the Bishop Briggs Media Centre by our amazing volunteers. You can get in touch with us via Facebook, Twitter or Instagram using at Kuhn Review, that is at symbol C-U-E-A-N-D-R-E-V-I-E-W. You can also contact us directly by emailing information at cunereview.com. That is I-N-F-O-R-M-A-T-I-O-N at symbol C-U-E-A-N-D-R-E-V-I-E-W dot C-O-M. Or by calling 0141 772 3976. That's 0141 772 3976. This is from The National, on Friday the 23rd of February 2024, from the Culture Section. Glasgow. Iconic Scottish Museum will close next month for three years. This article is written by Anne Fotheringham. A popular Glasgow museum is to close for three years as part of a multi-million pound refurbishment. The People's Palace and Winter Gardens Glasshouse in Glasgow Green has launched a Last Chance to See campaign before closing its doors on April 14th. Funding secured from the National Lottery Heritage Fund means the next stage of what bosses at Glasgow Life, the culture and sport arm of the City Council, are calling a transformational project can begin. The famous museum is home to collections documenting the city's social history from 1750 to the present day, including a steamy, the Buttercup Dairy and Billy Connolly's banana boots. The Glasgow Times told recently how campaigners, including Margaret Cochrane, fought to save the 126 years old building, which closed in January 2019 after structural engineers ruled it was no longer safe. The People's Palace reopened, but the Winter Gardens remained closed. The initial £850,000 lottery grant will fund a community engagement phase and pave the way to securing a further £6.65 million, one of the largest Heritage Fund awards made to a single project in Scotland. The total cost of the People's Palace and Winter Gardens project is £35.9 million. Glasgow City Council has already committed £2.9 million to the project. A further £11 million contribution will come from the Council, while Glasgow Life is working with other public and private sector funders to secure the remaining investment required. Bailey Annette Christie, chairperson of Glasgow Life, said, Having received the National Lottery Heritage Fund Award last month, we are keen to get started revitalising the People's Palace and Winter Gardens. It's what the local community has been calling for. Like them, we are eager to move forward with our vision to reimagine the whole place and create a dynamic community-led museum and flexible space which will foster new ways to promote inclusion, access and participation and minimise its impact on the environment. She added, 
with spring on the horizon and the school holidays only a few weeks away, I would encourage as many people as possible to grab this last chance to see the palace before we close the doors and continue to work with local communities on this exciting transformation. Once closed, the vision to restore the People's Palace and Winter Gardens as a vibrant museum and thriving community space will begin in earnest. The development phase will take about 16 months, starting with a community consultation along the lines of the approach used at the Burrell Collection. By collaborating with local people and using their views, insights and opinions to shape all aspects of the refurbishment, the aim is to transform the space and displays to make the building more accessible for all. Glasgow Life intends to work with the city's communities on collecting, object interpretation and programming to develop the main stories that will feature in the new People's Palace, ensuring more heritage is on display in a refreshed museum. Initially, investigative work will be carried out to confirm the condition of the building and inform detailed reports that will allow contractors to be appointed. Work will start with the careful transfer of the People's Palace collection to publicly accessible Glasgow Museum stores. The operational services and fabric of the building will also be refurbished in a bid to improve its environmental sustainability and creating a greener, world-class local museum. A spokesperson for Glasgow Life said the new museum is expected to open in 2027. That article was written by Anne Fotheringham. This is from The National on Friday the 23rd of February 2024 from the news section. Michael Matheson given 10-day extension to respond to iPad inquiry. This article is written by Laura Pollock. Former Health Secretary Michael Matheson has been given 10 more days to respond to the findings of the parliamentary probe, which led to his resignation. Matheson stood down earlier this month after continuing pressure, following revelations he had racked up a near £11,000 data roaming bill on his parliamentary iPad. The fees were caused by his teenage son's using the device as a hotspot during a holiday to Morocco to watch football, he said. The Scottish Parliamentary Corporate Body, SPCB, the cross-party authority tasked with the running of Parliament, launched a probe, with Matheson being supplied with a draft report on February the 8th and given 14 days to respond before the final version was published. Minutes of a meeting of the SPCB last week, published on Thursday, show Matheson applied for an extension on February the 14th, with the body increasing the time he had by 10 days. The minute noted the authority's responsibility to ensure that the member was afforded a fair process, including the opportunity to obtain advice if necessary, and to ensure that the report was complete and accurate. A spokesman for the Scottish Parliament said, For reasons of fairness to all and confidentiality of process, 
we will not comment while parliamentary investigation is ongoing. The SPCB remains committed to openness and transparency and will release all material it can, when it can, in line with its legal obligations. When news first broke of the issue last year, Matheson initially defended his position, with support from First Minister Hamza Yousaf, admitting in an emotional speech the bill had been caused by his sons, after having previously claimed there was no personal use of the iPad during the holiday. And earlier this month, Matheson said in his resignation letter to the First Minister he wanted to avoid the issue becoming a distraction. Initially, Matheson sought to cover the cost of the bill through a mix of his office budget and parliamentary expenses, but eventually decided to pay it himself after a backlash. That article was written by Laura Pollock. This is from The National on Friday the 23rd of February 2024 from the News section. Scottish Greens outrage as arms firm BAE Systems sees record orders. This article is written by James Walker. The Scottish Greens have hit out at BAE Systems and the UK government after the weapons manufacturer announced its order backlog soared to a record of nearly £70 billion. Maggie Chapman, MSP, said it was blood money, given the firm's history, including recently arming the Israeli military during its assault in Gaza, which has led to the deaths of nearly 30,000 Palestinians. Amid wars in Ukraine, Armenia and Gaza, the business said it had taken in £37.7 billion in new orders, meaning it now had £68.8 billion worth of vehicles, missiles, submarines and other equipment to deliver in the years to come. The business said it now had a high level of visibility of our revenues for many years to come, with some of the programmes running well into the next decade. This year's orders included big deals for weapon systems which have been used on the battlefields in Ukraine. The Scottish Greens MSP for North East Scotland said that BA Systems has a long and shameful history of arming some of the worst despots, dictatorships and human rights abusers in the world. When the rest of us see a humanitarian crisis, the arms dealers see a business opportunity. Every time there is war, conflict or oppression, there are merchants of death, like BAE, trying to profit from it, she said. BAE's arms have played a central role in the Saudi-led bombing of Yemen and are contributing to the genocide in Gaza. BAE Systems makes components for F-35 fighter jets, whose exports were even blocked by a Dutch court two weeks ago, citing concerns about the risk of them being used to carry out war crimes in the bombardment of Gaza. Since the start of the war in Ukraine, the arms firm's share price has soared, doubling in two years as many countries rushed to update their defences. This included new nuclear-driven submarines, called SSN AUKUS, that BAE is producing for the UK and Australian navies, 
which was awarded an extra £4 billion by the UK's Ministry of Defence. BAE said it provided support to our government customers and their allies to fulfil their primary obligations to keep citizens safe. Pre-tax profit rose to £2.3 billion from £2 billion a year earlier, BAE said. Chapman added that while BAE are awful, they haven't acted alone. The only reason they are able to sell their deadly wares is because of a shameful and complicit UK government that has supported them every step of the way, she said. The Scotland I want to build is a peaceful and progressive one that will have no place for companies who profit from human misery and exporting violence. The comments come after representatives from BAE Systems, as well as a range of other arms dealers, including Rayathon and Leonardo, attended a parliamentary reception on Wednesday, which the Scottish Greens called an arms dealer propaganda vehicle. The event held for the ADS Arms Lobbying Group was sponsored by Tory MSP Jackson Carlaw and led to a protest outside Holyrood. BAE Systems Chief Executive Charles Woodburn said, We've delivered a strong operational and financial performance in 2023, and I'm extremely proud of the way our people have delivered cutting-edge equipment and services to our customers, working together with partners across our supply chain. Our performance, combined with our global footprint and record order intake, means we're well-positioned for sustained growth in the coming years. That article was written by James Walker. This is from The National on Friday the 23rd of February 2024 from the news section. SQA strike could have major impact on exam preparations, Union says. This article is written by Katrine Bussey. Ministers are being warned that strike action by staff at the Scottish Qualifications Authority, SQA, could have a major impact on preparations for this year's exams. SQA staff are due to walk out on Friday, and the union Unite warned of the effect this will have on the coursework, marking and external verification process. The union said about 400 staff are expected to take part in the action which is part of an ongoing row over pay. Unite said that the offer made by the SQA for 2023 and 2024 would see most workers receive pay rises of 5.75% and 3.15% for the two years respectively. General Secretary Sharon Graham said, The pay offer made by the SQA represents a brutal pay cut. Our members will not accept being so undervalued by senior management. Unite will support our members all the way in the fight for better jobs, pay and conditions at the SQA. Unite Industrial Officer Alison McLean blamed both the exams body and the Scottish Government for the strike action, accusing ministers of failing to provide the money for a better pay deal. McLean said, Unite has attempted to resolve this dispute through negotiation for months. Even this week we put forward counter-proposals which could have averted strike action. This was rejected outright by SQA's senior management, 
who are in turn blaming the Scottish Government over a lack of money to fund a better deal. Let's be clear that the blame for this situation lies both with the SQA and the Scottish Government, who are the ultimate paymasters. Both should be under no illusions that months of industrial action will create a major impact on the coursework, marking and external verification process. SQA staff are due to take part in a second 24-hour strike on Thursday, February the 29th. In addition, a ban on staff working overtime, working at weekends and working additional hours which would lead to them accruing time off in lieu has been in place since February the 16th, with this action short of a strike due to run until May the 10th. A spokesperson for the SQA said, Industrial action by Unite began last week. This is regrettable, but we have robust contingency plans in place and can reassure learners that there is no impact on their coursework, exams or grades. The majority of SQA staff will be at work tomorrow, working hard to deliver for learners. Instead of unnecessary scaremongering, Unite should do the responsible thing and negotiate on a serious basis. At our request, they attended a meeting this week, designed to break the deadlock, but despite a number of extra benefits being added to the existing deal, Unite again rejected an offer outright, without going to their members. Unite's request for a one-year deal isn't new and would breach public sector pay policy, which we are required to adhere to, along with other public bodies. The pay offer on the table represents a total average increase of 7.43% in year one and a further total average rise of 5.19% in year two, including pay progression. It is the best offer possible which is affordable and within the limits of public sector pay. A Scottish Government spokesperson said, While this is a matter for SQA as the employer, the Scottish Government remains in close contact with them and has strongly encouraged resolution talks to resume. We have received further reassurances from SQA that learners will not experience disruption to their exams, courseworks or grades. That article was written by Katrine Bessie. This is from The National on Monday 26th February 2024. From the Politics section. Furious SNP hit back as Speaker denies emergency Gaza ceasefire debate. By Abby Garton Crosby. The SNP have accused the Westminster system of failing the people of Gaza after the Speaker denied the party an emergency debate on calls for an immediate ceasefire. Lindsay Hoyle rejected the party's application for a fresh debate on the issue on Monday afternoon, despite explicitly offering one after his decision to allow a Labour amendment during the SNP's Opposition Day debate meant there was no formal vote held on the SNP's motion. The Speaker's decision came after he met with the UK Labour leader Keir Starmer, who reportedly pressed him to allow the amendment and stave off a rebellion on the Labour benches. And, 
a Labour MP later admitted that he deliberately wrecked the SNP's motion by filibustering and buying his leader time. Hoyle told MPs that one of the reasons he denied the request was the UK government are set to make a statement on the Middle East on Tuesday. It comes after Starmer refused to say if he would work with the SNP on a fresh motion, following calls from SNP Westminster Stephen Flynn for opposition parties to work together. The SNP tabled a new motion for an emergency debate so the UK Parliament could vote for an immediate ceasefire in Gaza and Israel and pushed the UK government to take concrete steps to help make a ceasefire happen. Following Hoyle's decision, a furious Flynn said, Yet again, Westminster is failing the people of Gaza by blocking a vote on the urgent action the UK government must take to help make an immediate ceasefire happen. For months, the UK Parliament has blocked SNP calls for an immediate ceasefire and now it's blocking a vote on the concrete actions the UK government must pursue to make an immediate ceasefire more likely. The UK is a key ally and defence trading partner of Israel and the United States and a permanent member of the UN Security Council. It is not a powerless spectator and Parliament has a moral duty to ensure the UK government is doing everything it can. The SNP MP added that around 30,000 Palestinians, including women and children, had been killed while Westminster has dithered and delayed. The UK's strategy of equivocation has failed, he added. If the debate in Westminster is to be anything other than meaningless, it's essential that warm words on an immediate ceasefire are backed up with concrete action, specific, practical, tangible measures. I urge Rishi Sunak and Keir Starmer to work with us to ensure Parliament can mandate the UK government to pull every lever to help secure an immediate ceasefire and lasting peace through a two-nation state solution. Finally, it's regrettable that this inexplicable decision will further erode trust in the Speaker. The Speaker broke the rules last week. And this week, he has broken his word. How can MPs have any trust in the Speaker when he makes a public commitment one minute only to rip it up the next? If 30,000 dead Palestinians aren't worthy of an emergency debate, what is? The national contributor Owen Jones said of Hoyle's block on the new debate, why did the Speaker who Labour sources boasted they'd blackmailed, offered the SNP a new debate and then suddenly not allow it. How is this anything other than an establishment stitch-up? That article is by Abby Garton-Crosby. This is from The National on Monday 26th February 2024 from The News section. 
Major retailer opens new store creating multiple jobs by Rebecca Newlands. A major retailer has opened a massive new store near Glasgow creating multiple jobs. Toolstation, one of the country's main suppliers of tools and building supplies with over 550 stores, has unveiled its new shop in Coatbridge. The move has created seven new roles for the local community and staff will be on hand to help customers by providing expert advice and reliable service. Do-it-yourselfers, tradespeople and the like can get their hands on products from big brands such as Milwaukee, Makita, Wessex, Leyland and more. Store manager Daniel Caretti said, We are thrilled to have opened the new store in Coatbridge, helping support local tradespeople, DIYers and home builders with tools and more in the Lanarkshire region. Our knowledgeable team is committed to providing local customers with a reliable and convenient service for the essentials they need to conquer any task throughout 2024. The Coatbridge store neighbours other tool station shops in Bells Hill, Wishaw, East Kilbride and Parkhead. It is located at 4 North Caldean Road, Coatbridge, North Lanarkshire, ML5, 4EF and will be open seven days a week, 7am to 7pm, Monday to Friday, 7am to 6pm on Saturdays and 9am to 4pm on Sundays. That article is by Rebecca Newlands. This is from The National on Monday 26th February 2024 from the news section. Scottish Council considers charging Airbnb properties for bin collections. By Steph Braun. The City of Edinburgh Council is considering whether the owners of Airbnb style properties can be charged for bin collections. It comes after some councils in England opted to charge short term lets for waste management or arrange commercial pickups. The plans will be considered at the Council's Environment Committee. It comes after concerns about the volume of rubbish produced by short-term lets in central Edinburgh. Environment convener Scott Arthur said, Following feedback from residents, Council officers are currently looking at the issue of whether short-term let operators can be charged for their waste collections. This will be reported to and considered by committee in due course. Any new charge would be separate to business rates or council tax already paid by owners of Airbnb-style properties. New regulations for Airbnb-style properties came into effect in Edinburgh in October last year. Visitors booking short-term lets in the city were told to look out for licence numbers in adverts to ensure the property meets the requirements. Hosts can face fines of £2,500 if they have not complied. That article is by Steph Braun. This is from The National 
on Thursday, 29th February 2024. From the Culture section. Grandad reacts as huge project mapping Scotland from rocks goes viral. By Ross Hunter. The 85-year-old Grandad, whose rock map of Scotland went viral on social media, has said he would love to see it painted as a mural. Harry Young completed his 28-year project to create a geological accurate map of mainland Scotland from rocks in 2020. However, the project wasn't framed until his 85th birthday celebrations last week, a gift from his family. Young's grandson, also named Harry, then posted the picture on Twitter, X, to draw attention to the achievement. He wrote, My grandpa, who is 85, started making this rock map of Scotland in 1992. He collected rocks during amateur geology trips over 30 years. He says it had to be geologically correct and also aesthetically pleasing. He asked, if I could share online, as he wants to go viral, so please share. It has now been viewed by more than 2.6 million people and garnered thousands of likes and comments. Speaking to The National, the older young said he had started around 1992. I got interested in geology because I worked with the Clyde River Purification Board at the time. He went on. I was in the hydrology department measuring rivers and rainfall and this member of staff, she was a hydrogeologist, came back from America and gave me some fossils. She kind of inspired me into geology. Young then joined the Geology Society of Glasgow and began making field trips with its members in the summer. He said, At that time, it was okay picking up rocks and bringing them back home. They frown on it now, of course. But I had never seen a map done with all the rocks of Scotland, and I thought, well, I'm going to start that. Of course, I intended to go to every place and see it and pick the rocks myself. That's why it took so long. Over the years, Young's travels to collect rocks for his map were undertaken with characteristic good humour and an awareness that amateur geology doesn't tend to be a young man's game. I did a summer school in Aberdeen once and we went around Aberdeenshire visiting all these different sites. Of course, it was mostly mature students. At one point, we bumped into a group of Germans who asked what we were studying. I told him, geology, and he said, I see you've brought the fossils with you. Young said the reaction to his work has been absurd and that he appreciated the praise coming from professional geologists. It's crazy, it's absolutely absurd, but people like it. The comments are really nice. One woman said her husband had been teaching geology for 38 years and he was blown away by it and wished he'd done it himself. I'm only an amateur, 
So it's nice to hear that. I did try to get all the fault lines in the right places and with the right rocks, and I think you can see that. However, I also wanted it to look like a nice collage. I've achieved both, hopefully. I have thought about donating it to the Hunterian Museum as I did some classes at the University of Glasgow. But my vision was one of those murals there going on in Glasgow tenements now, like the Billy Connolly one. Just imagine that rock map scaled up and the whole of Scotland up the side of a building. That would be my vision for it. When asked whether he had plans to one day include Orkney and Shetland on the map, Young told the National that their exclusion was only due to their placement on official geological maps. I knew somebody would ask that, he said. I did my tracing from a geology map of Scotland, and both Orkney and Shetland were insets on that map. I know the islanders hate being an inset, so I didn't want to do it that way. If I had time, I would do it as well. But as a wee boy across the road used to say to me when I talked about the map, Harry, what if you die before you finish it? As I say, I'm 85, so Orkney and Shetland may just go back to Norway one day. That article was by Ross Hunter. From the National, Monday the 26th of February. From the comment section, Real Scottish politics. Don't expect consequences as Labour admit game-playing on Gaza. By Wee Ginger Doug, columnist. The SNP have called for an investigation after Labour MP Chris Bryant admitted that his party had indeed deliberately sought to wreck the SNP motion on a ceasefire in Gaza, a motion which had the potential to prove severely embarrassing to Labour leader Keir Starmer. Upon the conclusion of Prime Minister's questions in the Commons last Wednesday, the House ought to have moved swiftly on the SNP's Opposition Day motion. However, Bryant took to his feet and began to speak, and it was immediately obvious that he was stalling for time. The reason for Bryant's move is now clear. As he was on his feet waffling about irrelevancies, Starmer had barged into the Speaker's office and was heavily pressuring him to break with parliamentary convention and effectively put an end to the SNP's Opposition Day debate. All this was in order to get Starmer out of a hole he had dug for himself with his refusal to call out Israel's war crimes in Gaza. According to the Sunday Times, the Speaker kicked out carts from the room in order to speak with Starmer privately ahead of the vote. MPs huddled behind the Speaker's chair were allegedly heard talking loudly about how Keir is going to fix the Speaker, while Labour Whip Chris Elmore was heard telling MPs to use every procedural measure possible to delay. Bryant told Channel 4, I think the whole day was grubby and we need a system that doesn't allow people to manipulate the rules to be able to get what they want. He then laughed when asked if he had manipulated the rules so that Labour leader could get what he wanted. Bryant wrote a book called Code of Conduct, Why We Need to Fix Parliament and How to Do It. Yet here he was in Channel 4 laughing and admitting to twisting Parliament's rules to suit the interest of Starmer and the right of the Labour Party and accepting that Labour's behaviour was grubby. So fixing Parliament's code of conduct then, not just after the Labour Party has got what it wants, the hypocrisy is off the charts. With Bryant's admission, 
Perhaps certain meeting commentators and Scottish Labour's Anna Sarwar will now cease attempting to blame the SNP for Wednesday's debacle, but don't go holding your breath. Following the broadcast of the interview with Bryant, furious SNP MP Kirsty Blackman demanded an investigation, saying, These damning revelations show Sir Keir Starmer pulled every dirty trick in the Westminster book to wreck the SNP's vote in an immediate ceasefire in Gaza and Israel. After months of opposing an immediate ceasefire, and even defending Israel's right to withhold water and power from Gaza, it's shameful that Starmer sought to derail this important debate with his party filibustering, bullying the Speaker, and seeking to water down the motion by removing any mention of the collective punishment of the people of Gaza. Starmer's party has been caught red-handed following the admission by Chris Bryant that there must now be a full, independent investigation into the appalling behaviour of Keir Starmer and his colleagues, who are no better than the Tories when it comes to manipulating the broken Westminster system. But we can be sure any investigation will rumble on for months before concluding, as Westminster investigations always do, that no rules were broken and everything is fine and dandy and totally above board. You'd be as well submitting a complaint to the BBC about its anti-Scottish independence bias. Tories and Islamophobia The former Conservative Party Deputy Chair, the controversial right-wing idiot Lee Anderson, has had the Tory whip suspended after telling far-right news channel GB News that the London Mayor Sadiq Khan and Labour leader Keir Starmer are being controlled by Islamists. In a diatribe widely condemned as racist, Anderson said, I don't actually believe that Islamists have got control of our country, but what I do believe is they've got control of Khan and they've got control of London, and they've got control of Starmer as well. Neither Sunak nor any other senior Tory has condemned Ardison's diatribe as racist or Islamophobic. They have repeatedly dodged the question when asked where they thought his remarks were Islamophobic. They have called his remarks wrong and said that the whip was withdrawn because Anderson refused to apologise, but they haven't exactly said what it is that they want him to apologise for. For his part, Anderson has admitted that his words were clumsy, but has doubled down on his attacks on Cannes, accusing the London Mayor of double standards. He said, Hundreds of people have been arrested for racist abuse in these marches, and we barely hear a peep from the Mayor. If these marches were about something less fashionable, Sadiq Khan would have been the first to call for them to be cancelled. It's double standard for political benefit. He added, My words may have been clumsy, but my words were born out of sheer frustration at what is happening to our beautiful capital city. The incident has put the spotlight back on the Islamophobia which runs rampant in the Conservative Party and the British nationalist right-wing resentment upon which the Tories feed, bringing its racist sickness into the mainstream of British politics. And that was a comment piece by the wee ginger Doug. From the National, Tuesday the 27th of February, from the comment section, Drive to end Scottish child poverty must be stronger than constraints. By Karen Adam, columnist. Here in Scotland, many of our children are ensnared in the grip of poverty, a scourge that is a silent thief of potential. As an MSP, I've seen and heard firsthand how daunting our task to eradicate it is, particularly as a result of systematic barriers and political choices beyond Holyrood's devolved reach. 
It's a frustration that runs deep in my bones, and I'm sure in all of those tasks was consigning it to history. I chaired the recent meeting of the Children in Scotland cross-party group at Holyrood, and was moved beyond words when I was faced with expert testimony shedding a stark light on the health implications of poverty on children. The outcomes are extreme, long-lasting and detrimental not only to the individuals directly affected but to our society. I felt deflated by the human cost we are seeing but also resolved to continue to fight for justice for all those affected. Not long after this meeting, I received correspondence from the Food Foundation with some alarming revelations which underscored the gravity of our situation. With 60% of food insecure households reporting a decrease in fruit purchases and an even larger portion abstaining from vegetables, the dietary gap widens, laying the groundwork for a health crisis poised to reverberate through generations. This isn't just a statistic, it's about lives, lives stifled by circumstances, lives where the prospect of a healthy meal is a luxury rather than a given, and where families are forced to choose between nourishment and financial survival in the face of an unrelenting cost-of-living crisis. In Scotland, despite our fervent efforts, the shadow of poverty looms large, with 20% of households with children grappling with food insecurity. Scotland, though, in response, is not standing idly by. The Scottish Government, underpinned by a commitment to social justice, has embarked on a mission to alleviate child poverty. The second Tackling Child Poverty Delivery Plan sets out a significant stride towards this goal, with projections indicating a potential drop to the lowest levels of child poverty in nearly three decades. This is more than policy, it's a promise of a better tomorrow for more than 60,000 children who might otherwise have been left behind. Scotland's political desires and priorities stand as a beacon of hope and resilience. Our commitment shows a future where we're not just envisioning change, we're creating it. Yet, our efforts to weave a safety net for these families are continually challenged by a system that seems designed to hinder rather than help. The stark reality is that, within the constraints of the Union, our aspirations for a poverty-free Scotland are met with the systemic barriers I spoke of. Barriers that stifle progress and perpetuate suffering. The recent judicial decisions and political rhetoric emanating from Westminster serve as a reminder of the limitations imposed on our legislative powers, underscoring a troubling disconnect between political agendas and the welfare of our citizens. We are, as my colleague Marie Todd put it, once put it, fighting with one hand tied behind our backs. The path to eradicating child poverty in Scotland is fraught with complexities and challenges, but it's a path we tread with determination, guided by the belief that every child deserves a fair start in life. Our mission extends beyond financial aid. It's about reshaping a society where opportunity isn't dictated by birthright and where every child can dream without restraint. Yet, as the cost of living soars and the choices families face become even starker, it's clear that resilience alone is not enough. I see Scotland as a country fueled by a belief defined not by the wealth of the few, but by the well-being of the many. Our endeavour to lift children out of poverty is a moral imperative, a testament to our values as a society and a reflection of our commitment to the sanctity of every child's future. We must stay grounded in our advocacy for those who depend on us most. The fight against child poverty in Scotland is about making a tangible, everyday differences in the lives of our children. It's about ensuring every Scottish child has a fair shot at success, not because it's a government duty, 
but because it's our responsibility as a society. By working together, we have the power to significantly reduce poverty, making real changes that will allow every child to grow, learn and dream without limitations. This effort demands a collective push, a shared understanding that lifting children out of poverty strengthens our entire nation. Let us not measure our success by the obstacles we have encountered, but by the progress we have made, especially in the lives of children who stand to gain the most from our efforts and our commitment to making Scotland a place where no child is held back by their start in life. The vision of an independent Scotland is closely tied to this promise. Independence offers us the chance to fully tackle child poverty head-on, without the constraints imposed by policies that don't always align with our priorities or values. In an independent Scotland, we can design and implement strategies that directly address the unique challenges our children face, ensuring that social justice is at the heart of all we do. The road ahead is indeed long, but our determination to make Scotland a better place for our children is stronger than any obstacle. Together, we continue to strive for a Scotland where every child can thrive, buoyed by the belief that a more equitable, prosperous future is not only possible, but within our grasp. And that was a, an opinion piece by Karen Adam. From the National, Monday the 26th of February, from the comment section. The West's moral authority is buried underneath Gaza's rubble. Column by Steph Payton. Search beneath the rubble of Gaza and you will find, among the blood and the grief, another great casualty of Israel's brutal onslaught on Palestine, the broken remnants of the West's self-imposed moral authority over the world. Where now are the champions of human rights? Where is the humanitarianism that we were told defines our glorious role in the world? You won't find it in the complicious chambers of Westminster, nor behind the door of Downing Street. It's outside, heaving at the gated walls, demanding to be heard as it always has. There is a gulf between the people of the UK and its state, large enough to comfortably lose half a billion pounds worth of UK arms sales to Israel within. We have endured 14 years of callous conservative rule. We have watched the Labour Party abandoning everything it stood for, and we have seen both parties cast aside in the supposed foundations of the West to capitulate entirely to a genocidal ally. The idea of Britain as a force for good in the world has met, on a scale unlike anything before, the reality of its foreign policies and pick countries' approach to human rights. And thanks to social media, we all have front row seats to the horror of it all. I wonder how differently the West's perception of itself would have been if during the Iraq war we had had the same access to social media as we do now. Unfortunately, while US soldiers were torturing and killing Iraqis in the Abu Ghraib prison, Facebook was barely a twinkle in the eye of Mark Zuckerberg's competitors' minds. The Iraq war had been underway for three years before Twitter arrived on the scene, and even with the fledging introduction of these new social platforms, no network has yet was yet the powerhouse of citizen journalism that they have become since, for better or worse. But now we do see. Full 4K Technicolor presents snapshots from an occupied territory, footage of a mutilated child limply hanging from a wall in Palestine, sandwiched between videos of a dog eating spaghetti and Keir Starmer insisting that Israel does have the right to cut off food and water to Palestinian civilians. Gods do we see. The West's moral failings in Palestine are on display on every phone and computer across the UK. 
and we can see the gulf between how the West speaks and how the West acts. In every UN Security Council abstention and veto lies a contradiction between Biden and Sunak's milky toast applies to considering just to toning down the killing a little and their decisions to continue funding and arming and, and defending a genocidal regime exploited in its plans to infinitely cleanse all Palestinians from the river to the sea. Importantly, though, it is not the West's moral authority that has been left ragged by this conflict, but rather the perception that it held any to begin with. For all its talk in democracy, the West has backed any number of coups and democratically elected socialist governments. For all its talk in the rule of law, the West has turned from its own violations and the violations of its allies. For all its talk in humanitarianism, the West has discarded the principle of never again to equivocate on the obvious truth before them. When you understand that this is a game about being perceived as a moral authority over actually acting like one, the charade of Westminster's righteousness is laid bare. The farcical seafire wrote last week exemplifies this. Labour's amendment on the SNP's ceasefire motion was not a turning point in the debate. Parliamentary procedure aside, it was a cynical attempt to brush off activists who have been holding Starmer to account for the bloodshed that has happened with his endorsement. Rather than back the SNP motion, Labour tried to defeat it, removing references to the collective punishment of Palestinians at the hands of Israel, allowing the party to triumphantly yell, See, see, you can't be angry at us anymore, while coolly keeping themselves at distance from anything close to meaningful words of condemnation. Starmer's Labour weren't thinking of the people of Gaza, they were thinking of themselves. And now, what could have been a meaningful call for a ceasefire lies in ruins. You almost get the sense, in the limp pleas and indifferent languages, that much of the Westminster's issues with Benjamin Netanyahu stem from anger at the manner in which the killing is taking place over the killing itself. If the West's commitment to international law and humanity was as rock-solid as it professes, why else would it have stayed so silent during the decades of displacement and murder? Western politicians and media have instead treated care for Palestine as a fringe obsession of folk with a drum to bang and act like accountability and scrutiny are a great unfairness delivered upon them. This is a period of reckoning for the West. Its politicians don't want to hear you. Its states don't want to be accountable. And above all, its perception of itself as a force for good in the world does not want to be challenged. But out with Britain and Europe and the US, the West's terrible deeds are known and remembered. To most of the world, its posturing as a moral authority is a twisted joke. And all the while, real humanity pushes still at the gates, demanding justice. And that was a comment piece by Steph Payton. From the National, Tuesday the 27th of February, from the comment section. I worked in the energy sector. I saw how the UK squeezes Scotland dry. Article by Hannah Bardell. In the winter of 2010, I started a new career in the energy industry. The oil price was as high as confidence was in the sector and the UK Treasury was reaping the rewards. My time in the energy sector was largely focused on dealing with business change and companies that were adapting to mergers and acquisitions to expand their work, particularly in green energy. At the two companies I worked for, the biggest subsea company in the world, Subsea 7, and then service company Stork, 
There was a wealth of innovation and a vast skill base. So much so that the skills of staff across the companies were in phenomenal demand both at home and abroad. I learned pretty quickly that if you stepped into any energy capital in the world, you'd hear a Scottish accent before a local one, and, more often than not, it was an Aberdonian one. Our people, their skills and innovations have been honed in the North Sea, one of the most challenging environments in the world. Scotland's energy wealth has also kept the UK economy afloat for decades. That's why, as we mark the 50th anniversary of the Macron Report, the lack of sovereign fund hurts so badly. Indeed, it is a tragedy, but there's still time to create one for our green energy. An energy market so broken that the big companies watch the profits soar, pour in as people and businesses in our communities go bankrupt. A market where grid connections charges in Scotland are so high, green energy developers, like one in my Livingston constituency, have to have to build a solar farm twice as large as it would be in the south of England, where many companies get paid to connect their projects to the grid. Macron is one part of the story. It's a tangible and stark reminder of how Westminster, no matter who is in charge, will squeeze every ounce it can from Scotland's energy for its own gain. I had some phenomenal and also some very challenging experiences working in the energy industry. It shaped me and helped me solidify my views on why Scotland was so well placed to lead the world in energy policy, specifically green energy. However, on Friday the 23rd of August 2013, a super puma was ditched into the sea off Shetland, killing four people, including stock employee Gary McCrossan. I was the head of communications and family liaison contact that night. The people I worked alongside to deal with and understand those tragic events are some of the best in the business, and it's an experience that has left a deep mark on me. The people that work in our energy sector do remarkable work, but they also do very dangerous work, and there are many, arguably too many, who have given their life to keep the lights on across the nations of the UK. Now, more than ever, we need to show the respect and support for those workers. A just transition and green energy revolution will see those vital skills and jobs retained and developed. Westminster sold us out 50 years ago, and it won't hesitate to do it again. Independence is the only way we can truly protect Scotland's long-term energy security and ensure the green energy revolution gets the support it needs, not just for Scotland, but but the other nations of the UK too. In that article was a comment piece by Hannah Bardell. From the National, Tuesday the 27th of February, from the news section, MP slams IDF soldiers posing for selfies over the ruins of Gaza. Report by Hamish Morrison. An MP has slammed Israeli soldiers for taking selfies over the ruins of Gaza while the UK continues to export arms exports to the country. Gavin Newlands, the SNP MP for Paisley and Renfrewshire North, condemned the UK government for allowing the sale of weapons to Israel while Palestinian civilians are killed in their tens of thousands. He said, The circumstances are tragic and brutal and crystal clear to anyone willing to see them. Gaza raced to the ground, civilians actively targeted, potentially using the very equipment that the UK is exporting to Israel. Over 12,000 children butchered with the IDF busy taking selfies over the ruins and bodies. What exactly will it take for this government to suspend arms exports to Israel? Foreign Office Minister Andrew Mitchell replied, The government takes legal advice on this matter, 
The Arms Exports Committee does its work effectively and we will continue to act on the advice that we are given when we are given it. Newland's comments were later echoed by Labour MP Chi Unwura, who urged the Minister to condemn the Israeli soldiers who filmed themselves posing on the bicycles of dead Gazan children or rifling through the clothes of dead Gazan women. Mitchell refused to reference the specific point about Israeli soldiers, but said the government valued all lives lost to the conflict equally. He faced a Commons grilling on Tuesday afternoon, which came in place of a promised debate for the SNP on a ceasefire. It follows a major furore last week which saw the Commons descend into chaos after the Speaker bent procedural rules to Labour's favour on the SNP Opposition Day debate on a ceasefire in Gaza. SNP Westminster leader Stephen Flynn has accused the Speaker of having lied to Parliament after reneging on his earlier promise he would use an obscure Commons procedure to allow the party another ceasefire debate. During Mitchell's statement, the SNP and Labour reiterated their calls for an immediate ceasefire in Palestine, which the government argued against, claiming any cessation in hostilities at the moment would prove short-lived. The SNP and Labour backbenchers also attempted to pile the pressure on the government for continuing arms sales to Israel, and the government faced questions over its stance on UNRWA after refusing to make public the evidence withdrawing funding to the UN Agency for Palestinians. Alba MP Kenny McCaskill suggested claims UNRWA workers were involved in the Hamas attacks on Israel on October the 7th were Israeli propaganda. Alistair Carmichael, the Lib Dems MP for Orkney and Shetland, added, Has the government of Israel yet shared His Majesty's government their, their purported evidence of UNRWA complicity in the attacks of October the 7th? And, if so, when did they do it? Mitchell replied that UNRWA was under investigation by the UN and that evidence would need to be submitted to its probe into the matter. And that was a report by political reporter Hamish Morrison. From the National, Tuesday the 27th of February, from the news section, Scottish Tory controlled council passes SNP budget. Report by Xander Eliards. The SNP have succeeded in passing their budget plans on a Scottish Council led by the Conservatives. On Tuesday, councillors in Dumfries and Galloway voted to approve the SNP's budget proposals in an embarrassing result for the ruling Tory group. In 2023, the reverse happened and the Tories' plans for a 6% council tax hike were approved. Then, SNP Council leader Stephen Thompson quickly resigned his position, saying it had become untenable. In the days that followed, the Conservatives succeeded in installing their councillor Gail McGregor as the new leader of the local authority. The defeat on Tuesday has left McGregor and her administration red-faced, but it is yet unclear what the political consequences of the SNP budget victory will be, or if she will step down. SNP councillor Katie Hagman celebrated the result on social media, writing, Delighted to see her, the SNP budget proposal supported, and passed here at DG Council in our full council meeting, defeating the Conservative administration. The SNP's budget plans included a council tax freeze, which has been pledged by the Scottish Government, as well as a 100% increase in council tax on second homes in the region. The SNP's budget also included a £1.827 million to tackle the cost of living crisis, according to reports, while the Tories included a £1.742 earmarked for the same purpose. In January, 
An Audit Scotland report said Dumfries and Galloway needed to find a £38 million in savings over the next five years in order to balance the books. To meet the shortfall in the coming year, Dumfries and Galloway Council said it would be drawing upon £6.46 million of existing reserves in a bid to protect council services. Dumfries and Galloway Council's budget in 2024-25 is £456.09 million. Its total funding is £449.63 million. Dumfries and Galloway Council convener, Tory councillor Malcolm Johnson, said Every year we are faced with tough decisions and this year's no different. Uppermost in our mind is maintaining and improving the services we provide to the people of Dumfries and Galloway and we are fortunate that this year, through prudent financial management, we are able to draw on non-recurring resources to protect vital services and increase investment in targeted areas. However, like all local authorities, in the medium term we face mounting costs and reduced funding. For example, no additional resources have been received from the Scottish Government to support pay increases, non-play inflation or service pressures in 2024-25. This is challenging and we would also like to see a multi-year funding settlement, the absence of which presents significant challenges for service and financial planning for all public bodies, including councils. This combined now with the threat of sanction or financial detriment for any Scottish local authority that doesn't follow the Scottish Government's council tax freeze is not helpful for councils like ours when it comes to charting a sustainable financial future. And that report was by Xander Eliards. The National, recorded on Wednesday 28th of February 2024. The Culture Section. Glasgow Comedy Festival, Six Acts We Think You Should See by Adam Robertson, multimedia journalist. This year's Glasgow International Comedy Festival is due to take place from March 13 to 31, with more than 500 events set to take place. A host of top comedians will perform in the city across 45 venues, while the winner of the festival's only official award, the Sir Billy Connolly Spirit of Glasgow Award, will be revealed at the closing comedy gala. Connolly will choose the ultimate winner from a shortlist selected by an independent panel of judges. We've rounded up some of the best shows on offer at this year's festival. This is just a few though, so remember to have a look at all the acts and tickets here. www.glasgowcomedyfestival.com Kieran Hodgson Known for his role in BBC comedy Two Doors Down, Hodgson will bring his critically acclaimed show to the city he calls home on March 29 at the King's Theatre. Hodgson first moved to Scotland in 2020 and the show focuses on what that transition was like for him. Featuring impressions, storytelling and even a moment where he bursts into song, this show is well worth your time. Susie McCabe Fresh off her hit fringe show Femme Fatality, McCabe is now back with The Merchant of Menace. She spent her early career supporting the likes of Kevin Bridges, Jason Manford and John Bishop and also appeared in an episode of Have I Got News For You. Although she has three shows, tickets are currently only available for the show on March 16 at 5pm. Connor Burns Extra shows had to be added for Burns due to demand, which tells you all you need to know. Like both McCabe and Hodgson, he's coming to the festival after a sold-out fringe season, which saw him add over 2,000 extra seats to what was only his second-ever fringe to rave reviews. Tickets are still available for his show at the garage on March 21. Alistair Beckett-King Known for his brilliant parody videos online, Beckett King will be performing at the Orin Moor on March 29 with his show Nevermore. 
He previously spoke with The National about the influence of Billy Connolly in his career and what he loved about Scottish audiences when he brought his tour to the stand last year. Tickets for his shows are still available. Rosie Jones Jones is well known for her TV appearances on a wide variety of shows including Trip Hazard and Mission Accessible. She's also appeared in the likes of The Last Leg, 8 Out of 10 Cats Does Countdown and Mock the Week. Described by the Edinburgh Festival's magazine as downright hilarious, her show Triple Threat takes place on March 27. Eleanor Morton Like Beckett King, Morton is well known for her videos online, including one of a disgruntled Scottish tour guide named Craig. Her new show promises to explore all things ghostly and focuses on growing up in the world's spookiest city. Haunted House will be on at the Orrin Moor on March 26. By Adam Robertson, The National, recorded on Wednesday 28th of February 2024. The Culture Section. Scottish banknotes lead globally in featuring women, study finds. By Lucy Garcia. Scotland leads the world in featuring women in banknotes according to a new study. Research from brokers Traders Best looked at 115 countries across the globe and found that 716 different people are featured in banknotes. Of these, only 54 were women, 7.54%, compared to 662 men. When it came to featuring women in banknotes, Scotland leads globally, a spokesperson said. Traders Best study noted that Scotland's banknotes feature a diverse lineup of influential figures, including Scottish writer and poet Nan Shepherd on the £5 note, scientist Mary Somerville on the £10 note, and historic entrepreneur Catherine Cranston on the £20 note. Education campaigner and pioneer Flora Stevenson is also featured in the Scottish £50 note. The research also looked at historic banknotes which are no longer issued, including a £10 note featuring Mary Slessor, who was remembered for her impactful work in Nigeria during the late 19th and early 20th century, a £50 note featuring doctor and suffragist Elsie Lingles, and a commemorative £20 featuring the late Queen Elizabeth's mother. There are three note-issuing banks in Scotland, Royal Bank of Scotland, Clydesdale Bank and Bank of Scotland. England and Wales were also noted in the study for having Jane Austen in the £10, as well as the UK as a whole for featuring the late Queen Elizabeth in the obverse side of all banknotes. Traders Best survey found that Australia came in second place globally behind the UK, while Mexico came in third. It also noted how Martha Washington is the first and only woman to have appeared as the primary portrait on US paper currency after she was featured in the $1 silver certificate. Traders Best said, with International Women's Day in the horizon, the results prompt reflection in the prevalent perception of a world often seen as more centred around men. International Women's Day falls on March 8. The National will be publishing a special edition with details to be announced in the near future. By Lucy Garcia, The National, recorded on Wednesday 28th of February 2024. The Culture Section. When is World Book Day and what is the theme in 2024? By Patrick Glover, SEO reporter. It's nearly time to celebrate World Book Day again, but do you know the date it will be taking place in 2024? World Book Day was created by UNESCO back in 1995 as a worldwide celebration of books and reading. World Book Day celebrated more than 100 countries around the world, including the UK and Ireland. The first event in the UK and Ireland took place in 1997. Recounting the reason behind the creation of World Book Day, founder Baroness Gail Rebuck said, We wanted to do something to reposition reading and our message is the same today as it was then. 
The reading is fun, relevant, accessible, exciting, and has the power to transform lives. When is World Book Day in 2024? World Book Day will be held on Thursday, March 7, 2024. Schools across the UK will hold their own World Book Day activities on and leading up to the event, which often includes a dress-up day. Booksellers will also take part in World Book Day 2024, hosting events and activities. Families can also celebrate the occasion at home with World Book Day website offering many activity ideas. There will also be several official events across the UK to mark the day. As part of World Book Day, there will also be a range of books available for £1. For more information, activity ideas or World Book Day events, visit the website www.worldbookday.com What is the theme for World Book Day 2024? The theme for World Book Day 2024 is Read Your Way. Explaining this year's theme, the charity said, World Book Day 2024 will celebrate that children are more likely to enjoy reading when their choices are championed and we make reading fun. Reading for pleasure improves children's life chances across a range of social, educational and well-being measures. However, research from the National Literacy Trust found that fewer than 1 in 2, 47.8% children, now say they enjoy reading. This is the lowest level since 2005 and reading enjoyment is lost among children from disadvantaged backgrounds. Read Your Way calls on everyone to let go of pressure and expectations, giving children a choice and a chance to enjoy reading. By Patrick Glover The National Politics on Wednesday the 28th of February Labour Council Chief begs Tories to overrule devolution in council tax row. An article written by Abby Garton Crosby a Labour local authority chief has written to Tory ministers and begged them to overrule devolution and stop the council tax freeze from going ahead. Stephen McCabe, Inverclyde council leader, has pleaded with Michael Gove to fund local authorities directly after the Scottish Government tied funding from Westminster to accepting the freeze, according to the Daily Record. Deputy First Minister Shona Robeson offered £147 million in funding to keep the levy at current levels, with an additional £45 million coming from the UK government's budget in the coming weeks. However, Argyle and Butte Council has pushed ahead with a 10% increase, with Ms Robeson warning that authorities who follow suit will lose out on the Scottish government cash. The extra funding is expected to come from increases in funding on adult social care, which falls under the portfolio of Mr Gove as levelling up secretary. The record reports that following the row, Mr McCabe has contacted Mr Gove and asked him to bypass the Scottish Government. He wrote, You will be aware from press reports that the Scottish Government's Deputy First Minister and Cabinet Secretary for Finance, Shona Robeson, MSP, has advised Scottish councils that they will only receive a share of the estimated £45 million of Barnet consequentials from the UK Government if they agree to freeze council tax. I'm seeking your urgent intervention to ensure that all councils in Scotland receive a share of this additional funding, should it be allocated by the Chancellor in next week's UK budget. Chancellor Jeremy Hunt was also reportedly copied into the letter. We told how First Minister Hamza Youssef called on councillors in Argyll and Butte to reconsider imposing the unjustifiable 10% increase. 
The First Minister announced the freeze during his keynote speech to the SNP conference last year, keeping bills the same during 2024-2025 to help those struggling during the cost-of-living crisis. However, local authority leaders were not consulted on the move and have been critical of the decision. Mr Youssef insisted that freezing the charge was still the right thing to do. He said, for those councils like Argyll and Butte, who I think unjustifiably raised their council tax in a cost-of-living crisis, they will have to answer to their constituents. The Scottish Government insists that the £147 million funding is the equivalent of a 5% rise. But, crucially, councils will not get this cash or their share of a further £62.7 million offered by the Government last week if they do not agree to the freeze. An article written by Abby Garten Crosby. The National News on Wednesday, the 28th of February. Murder investigation launched after dog walker shot. An article written by Steph Braun. A murder investigation has been launched after a 65-year-old man was fatally shot on the outskirts of a Scottish town. At around 8.30am on Saturday, February the 17th, Brian Lowe was killed as he walked his dog in the Pitilly area on the outskirts of Aberfeldy. Emergency services attended, but he was pronounced dead at the scene. Following a post-mortem examination, his death is being treated as murder and detectives are appealing for anyone with information to come forward. His family has been made aware and are being supported by specialist officers. Detective Chief Inspector Martin McDougall of the Major Investigation Team said, Our thoughts are with Brian's family at this very difficult time and we are doing all we can to get them answers. We have been carrying out extensive inquiries since Brian's death and detectives are working alongside uniformed officers to establish the full circumstances. Our inquiries have so far revealed that Brian was out walking his black Labrador along a remote track shortly before 8.30am when he was fatally shot. Although this is a remote location, we would be keen to hear from anyone who was in the area at the time. I'm also appealing directly to the local community who might have information that could help. Police are stressing that anyone with information, no matter how small they feel it may be, should speak to detectives. Inspector McDougall added, Please do not assume that police already know the information that you have. A report will be submitted to the Procurator Fiscal. Local Area Commander Greg Burns added, I want to take this opportunity to reassure people we are working around the clock to find out what happened to Brian. Police have set up an online portal to encourage members of the public to submit information. An article written by Steph Braun. The National News on Wednesday the 28th of February. Rao as Highland Supermarket removes Gallic signage. An article written by Xander Elliott's. Supermarket giant Asda has responded after it was accused of showing total disregard for the Gaelic language by removing it from a Scottish island outlet. The controversy came after Asda took over the co-op at Broadford in the southern part of the Isle of Skye and removed all bilingual signage. While co-op signage had included Gaelic, the replacement branding from Asda is English only. 
One local told the National it would be an understatement to say that the community in Broadford is far from impressed. This is a rich and important part of our culture, and ASDA has shown they simply couldn't care less. They added... A grassroots Gaelic campaign group also raised concerns about the signage. It said that there was no use of Gaelic either inside or outside the location since the ASDA takeover. The group wrote in Gaelic on social media, ASDA is showing total disregard for Gaelic in their recent rebranding of the Broadford co-op petrol station, which had excellent bilingual signage. Would they do this in Wales with Welsh? An ASDA spokesperson told The National that they were newly arrived in the Broadford store and so had put up standard signage. They said Gaelic language signage would be installed as soon as possible. The ASDA spokesperson said, We moved into the Broadford store two weeks ago and to immediately reflect the change we installed our standard ASDA Express signage. In many of our stores we carry location-specific signage to reflect the languages spoken by the community and we will be installing Gaelic signage at the Broadford store as soon as possible. An article written by Xander Elliotts. From the National, Thursday the 29th of February. Police Scotland apologises as Emma Caldwell Killer sentenced. Ian Packer has been sentenced to life imprisonment with a minimum of 36 years after being found guilty of murdering Emma Caldwell in 2005, following a trial at the High Court in Glasgow. Packer, 51, has been sentenced to life imprisonment for murdering Caldwell, 27, who vanished in Glasgow on April 4th, 2005, and whose body was found in Limefield Woods near Robertton, South Lanarkshire, the following month. After the sentencing, Police Scotland apologised to the family of Caldwell and other victims of her killer Packer for having been let down. A dog walker found Caldwell's body in woodland with a garrote around her neck on May 8, 2005. During Packer's trial, the court heard a soil sample taken in 2021 from the site where Caldwell's body was found was a 97% match with soil found in his blue work van and Packer was charged by police in February 2022. Packer was found guilty of 33 charges against 21 women spanning 26 years. Two charges of sex assault and one of indecent assault were found not proven. The jury took four days to return their verdicts. At the High Court in Glasgow, Parker denied all of the offences but admitted during evidence that he indecently assaulted Caldwell. He said he was ashamed of his actions towards her and described his behaviour towards other sex workers as disgusting. He denied murdering Caldwell in his evidence, telling the court, it wasn't me who killed her, it wasn't me, I didn't do anything to her. The trial heard evidence from multiple women about Packer's brutal attacks on them. Prosecutor Richard Goddard KC described Packer as a violent and obsessive user of sex workers with an unhealthy addiction to procuring their services. 
Parker was 32 when he strangled Caldwell. After the court adjourned, Emma's mother, Margaret Caldwell, said thank you, everyone. She was joined by her son, Jamie, her daughter-in-law and grandson, along with the family's lawyer, Amar Anwar. That was an article by Laura Pollock. The National, Thursday the 29th of February. From the news section. SNP urge MSPs to back creation of National Care Service. The SNP have urged MSPs to back the creation of a National Care Service as it reaches its first hurdle at Holyrood. On Thursday, MSPs will vote on the National Care Service Scotland Bill at Stage 1, which the SNP have called the most ambitious public service reform since creation of NHS. If passed, the Bill would allow the Scottish Government to transfer the responsibility for social care from local authorities to a new national service. It aims to improve the quality and consistency of care services across Scotland. However, while the Bill will lay the foundations for the creation of a National Care Service, the substantive detail will be co-designed with those receiving and providing care at a later date. Speaking ahead of the debate, SNP MSP Emma Harper, who also sits on Holyrood's Health and Social Care Committee, which backed the principles of the reform last week, said, The case for reforming social care in Scotland is widely recognised, and the Scottish Government is committed to ensuring high-quality care is available to everyone who needs it, when they need it. Through the National Care Service Scotland Bill, the SNP government is undertaking one of the most ambitious reforms of public services since the creation of our NHS, investing in social care with the goal of creating a service of the same esteem as our NHS. This takes us one step closer to improving the quality, fairness and consistency of social care provision across Scotland, and I sincerely hope that opposition parties will desist from political game-playing and support this important reform. The Scottish Government is taking immediate action to improve social care now, investing £2 billion in social care and integration and £230 million for a pay uplift to a minimum of £12 for all social care workers. But there is more to do. I urge all MSPs to look beyond party politics and play their part in creating Scotland's National Care Service so that we can ensure consistent, high-quality care is available to those who need it. The Bill has so far faced criticism from some care providers and unions who say it lacks detail on how the service will function. While the Health Committee supported the general principles of the Bill, MSPs also expressed concerns about the specifics. Their report said, The committee is concerned that the Scottish Government has so far been unable to articulate and communicate a model of how the proposed National Care Service would operate. We understand that the Scottish Government intends to share this information prior to the Stage 1 debate and look forward to receiving it. That was an article by Ross Hunter. 
The National, recorded on Monday 26th of February 2024. The Culture Section Travel Paphos in Cyprus offers tourists much more than perfect beaches by Robin McKelvey, travel writer. Not many beach resorts boast a UNESCO World Heritage Site. Then again, not many beach resorts are like Paphos. The Cypriot city swims not just in big sky, sea and beach, but also in rich layers of history that make for more than just a beach holiday as I found when I returned earlier this month. My Paphos, also known as Paphos Base, was the Athena Beach Hotel, www.athena-cbh.com. A decent waterfront four-star, as well as bountiful swimming pools offered an a la carte Italian restaurant for guests staying in. The straggle of the main resort has all the cheesy bars, hotels and shops you'd expect from somewhere that pulls in the majority of its punters for a sunny Mediterranean break. The sign that Paphos offers so much more emerged when I walked half an hour along the waterfront into the old port. The hulk of Paphos Castle stands guard over the bobbing tourist boats, a striking sentinel since medieval times. It's easy to see why Paphos was recognised as the European capital of culture in 2017. Its UNESCO-recognised historic treasures are truly sublime. The Paphos Archaeological Park that swirls around near Paphos lies just by the harbour. The millennia just drift away wandering through Roman villas, checking out the brilliantly preserved ornate floor mosaics. Walking amidst the Odeon and the vast Agora, you share space with a wealth of Romans and Greeks. Greek gods too, whose legends hang heavy in the balmy air. Look out for the House of Ion, with its mosaic depicting the birth of Dionysus and Apollo's contest with Marsyas. Cato Paphos Archaeological Park next door is less dramatic, though it's admittedly hard to compete with its world-famous sibling. Look out for the Agia Solomoni Catacombs in St Paul's Church. Head for Fabrica Hill and a new elevated walkway lets you get a better handle on sprawling ancient Paphos. Many visitors skip the nearby tombs of the kings. Don't. Okay, so there are no actual kings, but these otherworldly subterranean tombs are remarkable and a joy to ramble around. Contemporary to Neopathos, it's thought nobles and other local luminaries would have been entombed here. An even less explored site is Palipathos, much further east. Many visitors come here to snap photos of Aphrodite's rock, where the eponymous goddess is said to have emerged fully formed from the waves. There is even a free app that lets you snap photos with Aphrodite herself. More historically significant is the main part of the World Heritage Site at Palipathos. This was the site of the first Paphos, devastated by an earthquake that precipitated the move west. There is less to actually see in the ruins here, though the museum does an excellent job. The site is also known as the Sanctuary of Aphrodite, as followers of her cult worshipped here for centuries. Homer is even said to have paid a visit. The wider Paphos district has so much to explore beyond these world-class historic treasures. I felt instantly at home venturing into the Akamas National Park to the west. As I clambered into the jeep of my guide, Panikos Neophytou of Safari, he said, We get a lot of Scots. They love it, and we love them. My next group is Scottish too. Hikers, so I'm really lucky. We battered off into the wilderness of this sprawling national park that sits so dramatically betwixt the milk-blue Mediterranean and the vaulting Trudos Mountains. The latter soar much higher than Ben Nevis to almost 2,000 metres. We took in the shipwreck of the Edrow Three and St George's Church, and the latter Scotland's own St Andrews stood just above England's patron saint, keeping an eye on his saintly brother. Lunch was a joy at Sophia and Andrea's traditional house in the wee mountain village of Lettenbau. Sophia and her husband made me feel as welcome as a dram-bearing dark-haired stranger in Scotland at midnight in Hugmanay. We mucked in, helped knead the dough for the bread that made it for a delicious souvenir. 
Delicious too was the feast Sophia conjured up in her traditional wood-fired outdoor oven. It was alive with roast goat and chicken, bursting with fresh vegetables and topped with the glorious ultra-fresh halloumi we watched her make. The next day brought a return to Akamas. This time, Panikos and I strolled on from the selfie spot of Aphrodite's baths and tackled one of the trails that spread their rugged tentacles across this wildscape. It was a binary walk of craggy limestone to one flank and blue sea on the other, only interrupted by soaring birds and a turtle breaking the surface. Panikos and I enjoyed a last meal toasting our new friendship and planning hikes in the real land of St Andrew at the Baths of Aphrodite restaurant. We swept through the type of spirit-soaring, fresh-produce-laden fish metsy they do so well around Paphos. This is truly a land fit for Romans and Greeks, who have both left remarkable legacies and an excellent resort for a beach holiday. EasyJet, easyjet.com, flies to Paphos direct from Scotland. Tourist information at www.visitcypress.com By Robin McKelvey That concludes this week's edition of the National Podcast. Please remember to subscribe to our channels at Tune Review and tell your friends about our service. <laughs>